everyone and welcome back to another episode of Haunted History Chronicles. To begin the podcast today we need to travel back to England of 1817. King George III was 79 and coming near to the end of his reign. The Mad King was old and not well having spent a number of years in isolation and confinement. The King and his wife had produced 15 children, of whom 12 were still alive. In November 1817 of that year, the much-loved granddaughter of the king, Princess Charlotte, died within hours of giving birth to a large, stillborn son. Her father, the Prince Regent, was prostrate with grief. The royal court and entire country joined him in an unprecedented demonstration of mourning for this double loss. It would cast a dark shadow over the royal court, and subsequent suicides and notable deaths only added to the heavy feeling of grief. In corners of court, people whispered that dark times were ahead, and they were right. In many ways, the death of the princess and her child would cast its long shadow far and wide, even hanging over the birth of another royal child born a few months later, in the year of 1818. This baby would be no stranger to grief or death. The court was awash with a concern with regards to succession. Of his twelve children, the king's five surviving daughters were either spinsters or childless. His sons appeared even less promising. The prince regent was fifty-five and long estranged from his wife. His brothers all middle-aged and courting scandal. The king did not possess a single legitimate grandchild. This was about to change, however. On the evening of the 23rd of May, 1818, the Duchess Marie-Louise Victoire went into labour. The following day at 4.15, a healthy, vigorous daughter was born, named Victoria. She stood already fifth in line to the throne, behind her uncles and father. The birth of Victoria was not greeted with the kind of celebration that you might expect. The Prince Regent was grieving terribly for his daughter, the Princess Charlotte and her son, grieving for the death of the dream that his children would be the future line to the throne. As a result, he expressed his dislike for his brother Edward, his wife and their daughter Victoria whenever he could, leading them to be very much on the periphery of the court and family life. At seven months old, baby Victoria and her family were visiting Sidmouth for the Christmas holidays. Three days after their arrival, whilst laying in the arms of her nurse, a shot would break the window of the nursery. The bullet whistled past the baby's head. So close came that bullet that the sleeve of her nightgown was torn. Within days a severe winter spell hit, and the whole family was unwell. The robust duke suffered terribly with a gastric attack and chills. His doctor prescribed calomel, a preparation of mercury used as a purgative. The duke, who was rarely ill, was declining fast. High temperature and pneumonia followed. He suffered from violent bouts of vomiting and pains in his chest. His treatments of bleeding, cupping and blistering, only weakening him further. On the 22nd of January 1820, Dr Christian Chapman had no option but to inform the Duchess that human help could no longer avail her husband. By ten the following morning he would die, 
his wife kneeling beside his bed holding his hand. To the world outside the death of the Duke was a shock. To the young Duchess it was a crushing blow. She was alone, breathing, isolated in a foreign land. Even in grief the Duchess could not escape the unwelcoming and hostile acts of her husband's family, who denied her the right to attend her own husband's funeral. The young widow, along with her daughter Victoria, faced an uncertain road ahead. Within weeks King George III died at Windsor Castle, victim of porphyria. The young Victoria had been quickly raised from fifth to the third in line of succession. The Prince Regent, now George IV, was king, where he only continued to pour his scorn and derision on the young Duchess and her daughter, the future Queen. It's easy to see why Victoria's mother would keep her in isolation, except for her small trusted circle. We can understand why she would keep her so close and want to protect her from any and all harm, even going so far as to ensure they slept side by side, something that only ceased upon Victoria being pronounced Queen. On June the 26th, 1830, George the Fourth, the Prince of Pleasure, died. His death was most certainly not mourned by the Duchess, he knew the power of his grief and spite. For the Duchess and Victoria, their fortunes are about to change slightly. The new king, William IV, had no legitimate children. He was prepared to welcome young Victoria and her mother back into royal court life and acknowledge Victoria as his heir. At 17, the heir to the British throne would meet her future husband, Albert of Saxe-Coburg and Gotha, at her 17th birthday. In their memoirs, both Victoria and Albert wrote of how they instantly fell in love. After acceding to the throne in 1837, she would move into Buckingham Palace. Tradition dictated that no one could propose to a reigning monarch, and so during his second visit in October 1839, Victoria proposed to Albert at Windsor Castle in Berkshire. They were married at the Chapel Royal, St James Palace in London, on the 10th of February, 1840. It would be Albert's death in 1861, just months after the death of her mother, that would shatter her completely. He had been the light of her world. Her chief consolation in the years that followed was to pray beside his tomb. Victoria kept on her person the keys to that tomb at all times thus allowing her access for hours at a time to commune with his spirit. She was absorbed by his plans, wishes and desires. There could not be enough statues, busts or pictures of Albert. Fairs of state often went neglected as she sat in solitude, communing with Albert. In 1861, that same year, Queen Victoria wrote to her eldest daughter, writing, I feel how to be so acquainted with death and to be so nearer the unseen world. In April 1863, the Queen wrote time and time again of hearing what has been described as the ghost voice of Albert. In the vicinity of the mausoleum it seemed to say, Germany, ever Germany. Other recorded moments can leave us no doubt that she believed she heard the voice of her dead husband, once leaving a Privy Council meeting in fact to consult him. Returning she announced that, the Prince was hostile to any act of war by England. Lord Clarendon wrote at the time, after a visit to Osborne, that she acts as if he was in the next room, 
The world of the strange and unusual, the world of death and its fascination, was not something Queen Victoria could resist. There is overwhelming evidence of her interest in death and in inexplicable phenomena. The Victoria Tower in Windsor, located to the right of the battlements, was once Queen Victoria's private sitting room, her place of solitude and sanctuary from interruption. It holds an ornate, enormous fireplace carved with mysterious and jumbled mythological figures. Queen Victoria would not be alone in her fascination with paranormal activity. Spiritualism was highly popular in Victorian Britain at the time. Intellectuals and aristocrats alike held table-tapping seances, at which people would gather around a table in the hope a spirit would communicate via a series of knocks by tipping the table. Like many of her subjects caught up in this popular movement, Buckingham Palace became the setting for a number of seances and table-turning experiments as psychics and mediums were presented to an enthusiastic monarch. These included the clairvoyant Georgiana Eagle, who gave a demonstration before the Queen at Osborne House in July 1846. The Queen was so impressed that she had a watch inscribed to Miss Eagle, for meritorious and extraordinary clairvoyance, although sadly the psychic died before the gift could be presented to her, instead being given to another prominent American medium. The watch eventually found its way to the College of Psychic Studies, where it was exhibited for many years. During the year 1845, Queen Victoria met both Gladstone and Disraeli, two men who played a considerable part as Prime Minister in her role as Queen, and who both held deep interest in the occult and in evidence of the afterlife. There are references to Gladstone in the Annals of Psychical Research, for example. He was friends with the medium Robert James Lee, who held many seances for the Queen, according to reports someone who the Queen in fact wanted as her resident medium. Gladstone showed his serious interest in the scientific study of phenomena, such as slate writing, by becoming a member of the Society for Psychical Research, which he considered to be conducting the most important work being done in the world. Gladstone was a man inclined to talk a lot, something that the Queen often lamented over when it came to matters not of her interest. But on psychic matters, she could never hear too much. Robert James Lee, the medium and friend of Gladstone, was born in 1849. Lees grew up aware that he was a medium. It is claimed that he was in fact the first medium to make contact with the spirit of the dead Prince Albert. The spiritual magazine joined sitters at his seances, printing accounts afterwards of the alleged spirit voice of the Prince Consort coming through. The editor would send a copy of this article to the Queen. According to Lee's daughter, a week later, her father was visited by the editor and two strangers for another seance. Here, her father, when entering into a trance, was able to name the strangers and report they came from the lady concerned. Lee's would then go on to give messages from beyond the grave. He was asked to write a message using personal private names to the Queen, names only she would know. This message was sealed and hurried to her. At just 14 years old then at the time, Lee's sealed message convinced the Queen of his ability. He was brought to Windsor Castle where he gave as many as nine seances to her over the years. Shortly before her death, the Queen sent for Lee's, inquiring if there was anything she could do for him. It's astonishing to realise just how many friends and acquaintances Queen Victoria actually had that were interested in ghosts and the occult. 
she seemed to attract herself to people who were interested in these subjects. The Queen loved hearing and telling ghost stories, always saying she once saw the ghost of Queen Elizabeth I in the Library of Windsor and the famous Green Lady ghost of Craze Castle. She loved any stories of death and dying and reveled in the last words of King George IV, who clasping his doctor's hands had said, My boy, this is death. Victoria puzzled hour after hour the meaning of his words and what actually happened to him in the next world. Long associated with mourning after Albert's death, she became a visual representation of grief. His blue room was meticulously photographed so that it might be kept always as it was the night he died. A bust of the prince was placed between the two beds, which he'd shared in his last hours, and Victoria slept in the bed she had occupied when he had slept beside her. Often in the years that followed, she would clasp to herself one of his nightshirts, and a cast of his hands would be within her reach. Over the uncreased pillow she hung his portrait, crowned with a wreath of evergreens. Her handkerchiefs and writing paper, already heavily bordered in black in memory of her mother, were altered so that the mourning borders were increased. Each night, a clean night shift for the prince was laid on his bed, hot water and a clean towel provided. The shadow of death was never far from the Queen. In 1817, her daughter Alice, who had offered her much comfort after Albert's death, died. An odd twist of fate would see her death coincide with the anniversary with the death of her father. Victoria would lose one of her closest and most trusted friends, and in March 1879, the grandson who died from haemophilia. Death hovered perpetually in the remaining years of her life, losing both her sons Leopold and Frederick. In the midst of this death, the Queen still looked for evidence of the afterlife. Death when it came for Victoria came quickly. On the 14th of January 1901, in her 82nd year, there was a blank page in her journal for the first time in 69 years. On the 19th, a bulletin was issued saying the Queen was not in her usual health. Randall Davidson, the Bishop of Winchester, came and recited her favourite poem. Tudie, the Queen's pet Pomeranian, was brought and lay for a while on the dying monarch's bed. At last, Death, the great mystery that had obsessed her and followed her for half a century, claimed her. She went willingly, supported by her grandson, the Kaiser of Germany, whose arm held her while she breathed her last. After lying in state, she was taken to her dear mausoleum, where she was joined at last with her husband. Not long before his death, the Prince Consort told the Queen, we don't know in what state we shall meet again, but that we shall recognise each other and be together I am perfectly certain. In all the forty years of her widowhood, while the world moved restlessly towards doubt and cynicism, the Queen believed fervently with all her heart the words her husband had told her. We can only hope that was true. She deserved it to be true. Thank you for listening. Bye for now. If you like this podcast, there's a number of things you can do. Come and join us on Facebook, Instagram or Twitter. 
spread the word about us with friends and family. Leave a review on our website or other podcast platforms. To support the podcast further, why not head on over to join us on Patreon, where you can sign up to gain a library of additional material and recordings, and in the process know you're helping the podcast continue to put out more content. On a final note, if you haven't read it already, then you can find my piece In Search of the Medieval in Volume 3 of The Feminine Macabre over on spookeats.com or via Amazon. Links to the book will also be in the episode description. Thank you everyone for your amazing support. Mm -hmm.